0: Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we're back with two scary stories that I hope you'll enjoy. Again, thank you so much for the constant support on the YouTube channel and here on the podcast as well. Without you listeners, none of this would be possible. So, let us begin, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I deliver meat as a truck driver. I must follow a strict list of rules. Written by Josky the Great. As far as I remember, I've always been fascinated about road trips ever since I was little. The factor of such definitely came from my dad who once worked as a truck driver and would often bring me along with him. Now being grown up and all, those sweet memories eventually faded along with time. The last time that I graduated was nearly a decade ago. All the jobs that I took were merely a part of an inconsistent, unpleasant career that barely supported my financial burden. Being nearly stuck in a dilemma, I finally decided that it was time that i find a stable career with a job that I actually enjoy. Fast forward a few months after, I couldn't be much happier to have finally possessed a competent truck driver's license after digging out my remaining money for the lessons. The moment that I took hold of it, I did not waste time to seek for companies that would hire me. It took some quick browsing before I found a small, unnoticed company that offered good bucks. It introduced itself as a meat company that desperately needed new drivers as demands were increasing lately. I partook in an interview and sure enough, secured the job since they were unexpectedly that desperate. My orientation was right on the next day. Prior to it, my new boss ordered me to sign some terms and contracts and handed me a set of documents, which he described it as the company's rules and regulation. Since the goods I transport are fresh meats, it means that I had to drive midnight carrying them from the factory to its destination before morning for the public to purchase and consume. The orientation went smoothly and I quickly adapted to the lifestyle of a trucker within days. During my first few days as an amateur, I was accompanied by my supervisor who observed my driving. He told me that it was protocol for a driver to be accompanied along the ride. But most of the time, I would have to be alone due to worker shortages. Therefore, driving solo wouldn't be an uncommon thing in this company. Well, it was pretty awesome driving around late at night, enjoying the night view, although I still needed to arrive on time. Other than that, I was coping with the job really well. One usual night as I arrived to my company to start my job, I was greeted by my slumbery boss, who told me that I needed to handle today's delivery alone. I glared at him momentarily before nodding and I walked toward the six-wheeled, rigid fridge truck that I had been working on. It was my first ever solo. The engine of the truck roared alive as I turned the key forward. The headlights illuminated the wall in front of me with such brightness that I had to look away momentarily. Next thing I shifted the gear and drove towards the loading bay as I was taught. The ram gradually opened as I pressed one of the buttons exposing cool nitrogen gas out into the already cold atmosphere. Sounds of rumbling faded in as a forklift carrying meat packages unloaded into the container, creating bangs and impacts which shook the truck and me inside of it. As soon as I heard a familiar tap pattern, I instantly recognized it as a signal and shut the ramp close. It wouldn't take long before I exited the factory and took the main road. The GPS voice made an indistinguishable announcement. Your journey to Joe's Meat Market, Oregon, is 179 miles northwest. Have a safe drive. Initially, I drove through residential areas before passing by farms and factories. It wasn't until I had to make a turn into a smaller road, which would cover the majority of my trip. The streetlights weren't well lit, which gave the road a gloomy appearance. As I advanced for 30 miles, Streetlights no longer covered the roads and all that was left, illuminated, was the headlight of my truck, the dashboarding the glittering stars across the sky, and on occasion, high-beam lights from passing cars. All around me were lush and thick forests, making the surrounding extra dark. The truck's engine vibrated as it cruised down the road and it shook my body throughout the drive. Staring at the illuminated road, I couldn't stop myself from thinking a set of special rules that I had read earlier. Special Rules In this section of rules, it is obligatory for every worker to abide every rules that were listed. Failure to do so will almost guarantee a life-threatening hazard. This version covers special rules for long-haul truck drivers. Rule 1 As you are operating as a night shift driver, you must keep the headlights on at all times, especially on dark roads even when your truck is stationary. This might sound simple but extremely important for safety reasons. As I recalled such rule, I wondered why it was in the special list when it was a literal common sense in the real world. I took a turn at a sharp corner and accelerated the truck. As I stepped on the pedal, I recalled the second rule. Rule two. If you are driving in a remote area, abide the traffic rules if there are vehicles nearby. However, if you are completely alone, try to cruise at a higher speed as to quickly avoid unwanted visitors. Unwanted visitors? And that sent a chill down my spine. I mean, who would want anything from a meat truck? That was when I jerked on the brake pedal suddenly as a figure quickly approached ahead of me. It was a person who seemed to be lost. Thinking of the following rule, I did not stop the truck and instead swerved and overtook him. Rule number three. Never allow anybody to ride in the truck, even stranded or lost people. Failure to do so will result in an immediate disqualification from this company. If you're lucky enough not to fall into its trap. Staring at the rearview mirror and the dashboard camera, I couldn't help myself but curse under my breath. Why not? This was getting frustrating. Just a few minutes after the incident, a yellow indicator popped out on the dashboard. Something that I really wish hadn't happened to me right now. The truck's engine compartment began filling with smoke and traces of it escaped through the crack of the hood, forcing me to halt the truck. Apparently, luck couldn't get any worse as the engine overheated in the middle of a creepy forest. Water coolant was running low, and so I stepped out of the truck to grab the water jerry. As I opened the door, a cool breeze blew over my body, scenting chills within my body. I embraced myself and shone the torchlight towards where I was facing. I clumsily waddled to the side of the truck, both legs still cramped from the tedious driving. Then I pulled a trigger which opened the hood of the truck. I could feel the heat radiating onto my body from the overheated engine. I took a quick break before pouring some water into the coolant tank. I left the hood open for some time while I chilled inside the cabin. It was then that I realized my delivery had to be inevitably delayed. It took almost half an hour for me to be confident enough to continue the journey. As I stepped outwards again to shut the hood, something bizarre happened. The same guy that I overtook a while ago appeared behind my truck. Completely dumbfounded but somehow expecting it, I glanced towards him as he slowly approached me. He was in his forties, had brown hair, and appeared to be dirty and torn and looked emotionless. In a deep, monotone voice, he asked, Why did you not stop just now? I hesitated for a while before replying. Sorry, but company doesn't allow us to pick up strangers. In the middle of nowhere, you think it's okay for me to be alone here? Look, I'm sorry, I stuttered, but... A car suddenly drove past us, its high beam distracting my view on that guy. I covered my eye with my arm. As I put my hand down, the guy seemed to be nowhere, except he was now at my right side. My heartbeat skipped, but I remained in composure. What are you waiting for? I'm not letting you go this time. His face began to show irritation. Alright, just... Stay here while I get things done. I walked to the front of the truck to shut the hood, all while shivering from the sudden change of aura that this guy gave. I quickly stepped into the cabin and instinctively shut the door, barricading myself from the man outside and deactivated the locks. The click on the door as it locked was something that I anticipated so much that it gave me a quick sigh of relief. The man appeared beside me, now knocking on the door, probably wondering why I had locked myself in. Or maybe not. My heartbeat raced as I rushed for the keys and ignited the engine. The rumbling came again, but I was so grateful that I could feel it. I instantly shifted to first gear and accelerated ahead. The guy's yell and knocking was suppressed by the loud diesel engine, but I could already imagine him cursing as he banged on the truck. As the truck gained speed, the banging shifted all the way to the back of the truck. And then came silence. And that was when I heard a bone chilling scream. That was not a human scream, it sounded too unearthly. My primal instinct could sense evil behind the deafening roar. I glanced at the rear of my truck only to visualize a traumatizing silhouette which was now chasing me. From what I could see it stood six feet tall even with all four of its legs. Its appearance was too dark but I could definitely notice a darker patch of eyes staring into my side mirror, right into my soul, its serrated teeth hungry for flesh. The figure approached rapidly as the truck's rear light illuminated the unearthly creature in red. I could hear bangs on the side of the truck. It was attempting to breach the container. I brake-checked unexpectedly, making the creature unable to react in time and tumbling onto the asphalt. I accelerated harder this time and fled the scene. That was when another rule popped into my memory. Rule number four. If something is following you, don't let them catch you. Do your best to survive. Something. Is that creature the something that they're referring to? I tried to connect the dots while simultaneously focusing on the road. Adrenaline was rushing endlessly when all of a sudden, a horde of these similar creatures flanked from the side of the road. My jaw dropped as I was flabbergasted by the sudden attack. I swerved to avoid them and hit one of them. I felt a huge crash, but the truck kept on going. A series of bangs and clangs reverberated the truck's chassis as the container was constantly ambushed mercilessly by the creatures. I couldn't think of much of a solution as they gradually broke in. I couldn't think my luck more as a tunnel approached in front. Taking this opportunity, I swerved right and took down three to four of these creatures off the truck. I could hear the splatter as they were crushed between the truck and tunnel. I did the same at the left side of the truck as I crossed the double line and skidded against the tunnel. The creatures on the other side were obliterated. The tunnel ended as the last creature's body laid onto the ground from the devastating blow. I celebrated momentarily, punching the steering wheel as soon as I exited the tunnel. I drove for another five miles, still high on the adrenaline. I didn't notice the sharp curve in front of me and the massive truck battered into the woods as I couldn't react in time. The truck was too fast and I was running for my life. The truck eventually came to a complete halt, jolting me forward like a dummy rag doll. I cursed under my breath. I just thanked that my seatbelt had saved my life. I shifted into reverse but horror dreaded upon me as I realized that the RPM was at its max. This only meant one thing. I was stuck. I screamed in panic and in pain. I scanned around me. No vehicles. I was completely alone. I felt hopeless then. I already called my boss and he promised to send a tow truck as quickly as he could. I've been hiding in my truck for about 15 minutes now, I don't think they'll ever make it though. Reason so, I could hear the creatures from a mile away now, approaching at an alarming rate. And did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? It can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses, and it's just gross. Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding, such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria. Miracle Brand Sheets are self-cleaning. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Miracle-made sheets are also thermal regulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get a better sleep every night. Go to trymiracle.com/mrcreeps to try Miracle-made sheets today and whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one. If you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code MRCREEPS at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Go to TryMiracle.com slash MrCreeps and use the code MrCreeps to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's TryMiracle.com slash MrCreeps to treat yourself. If you get a pizza delivery after 3 a.m., don't answer the door. Written by Young Seti. The ringing chime of my doorbell pierced the fog of sleep, carried through the otherwise silent house with an echo that stirred eerie thoughts in my partially dreaming mind. I almost slept through it when... The unmistakable sound of knocking, three urgent raps against my door, forced away the last of my haze of sleep. Lucy, I muttered, Voice Horace was asleep, waving lazily to bat my girlfriend awake. My hand met nothing but the air falling into the empty bed beside me, sparking a sudden rush of confusion that immediately gave way to recollection. She had left for a business trip on the other side of the country that morning, and wouldn't be back for another day or so. I was alone. I rose reluctantly, doing my best to rub the feeling of sandpaper from beneath my eyelids as I peered with blurry vision at my nightstand. 3.13. The old clock on my nightstand read, its letters coming into view as my vision adjusted. Who the heck would be here at this time? I had never received a visitor so late since we had moved in and I felt a wisps of unease wafting through the fog of fatigue. You're a big girl, Melissa. You can handle late-night visitors without your wife. I told myself, doing my best to keep the instinctive rush of anxiety at bay. I still felt somewhat new here, having only moved to the small town of Cold Lake, Illinois a year prior, and while I enjoyed the small-town life, I didn't feel quite as familiar yet. Still, who would be here at this time? I scored my memory of the night before. My mind still groggy from the few hours of sleep that I had managed until all at once it clicked. I had fallen asleep the night prior doing my usual social media surfing, trying to stay awake while waiting for the pizza that I had ordered myself for dinner that night. I realized that I must have drifted off at some point. At least two hours had passed from what I could recall, and I realized at some point that I must have drifted off to sleep. I blinked, confusion blooming. I had ordered around 9pm at the latest, had they been knocking there for a while. No, I wouldn't have slept through that, and if anything, they had just left my food to freeze on the porch. I sat up, the room was dark, the errant rays of moonlight and the glow from the nearest street lamp seeping in through the closed shutters, only just preventing total blindness. The knocking again, thunderous in the silence of the night, followed by the chime of the doorbell. I searched the sheets from my phone, finding it under my pillow my hand moving somewhat blindly until the notification had popped up on the screen. Movement at your front door. When we moved in, my wife had insisted that we install one of those doorbell security camera systems to connect to our phones after seeing one too many internet videos of home invasions, and I didn't disagree. On nights like this when her job required that she be out of town for days at a time, I found it a particular comfort to be able to see who was at our door without having to actually greet them. Another set of knocking made me jump. The final strands of sleep had been tugged from my mind, and a cloud began to mass in my chest. From somewhere outside, one of our neighbor's dogs began to bark, filling me with a familiar sense of anxiety about being a nuisance. I couldn't imagine a logical reason why the food that I had ordered at 9-something the night before would be arriving now, nor why the driver would make such a disruption so late at night. A creeping sense of disquiet began to take root. Rather than physically answer the door, I elected to check the doorbell camera. There was something heavy in the air, a strange surrealness that clung to everything like a fog, giving it an awful dreamlike feeling. My fingers raced across the screen unlocking my phone and opening the app. Something about having such an unexpected clamor wake my mind from the borders of sleep at such an odd hour made everything feel strangely dreamlike. Anxious anticipation twisted knots in my stomach As the live camera loaded, each spin of the gray swirl at the center, seemingly making the nauseating sensation of butterflies in my stomach multiply. Finally it loaded, the video sparking to life on my screen. Oh, I breathed. My heart dropped in response, a deep pit forming in my chest. I felt an icy chill raise goosebumps along my skin in immediate response to the person that I saw on the camera. On the front stoop of our house stood a man, something immediately unsettling in his appearance. He was tall and nearly towering out of frame, despite leaning forward to meet the camera. The top half of his head was hidden beneath the brim of the dirty baseball cap that he wore. Filthy blonde hair thick with grease Sticking out from the sides The fading logo emblazoned on the front of it At the center of the camera In bold lettering atop a cartoonish illustration of a pizza Joey's Pizza It read, some of the text covered in dark stains And I instantly recognized the name of the pizza place That I'd ordered from hours before Johnny's Pizza a local place that had become a favorite of ours. What I could see of his skin appeared sickly, almost translucent, even in the gray-green tint of the camera's night vision, and stretched, as though his face it didn't quite fit the head that it was on. His thin lips were pulled back into a small cracked grin, stretched across his thin lips, never once wavering as he stood swaying lightly on ungainly legs like stilts. I tried to shake the reaction. Surely the poor man must suffer from some condition. Perhaps he had been burned. A part of me felt awful for the initial response, yet no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't shake the alarm bells that his appearance set off. A name tag hung pinned to his shirt, reading, Hi, my name is Philip. He stood, arm stretched forward, one clutching a red canvas delivery bag, like the kind that I had seen plenty of times before, though far dirtier than usual, covered in unidentifiable dark blotches, bulging out as though it had been stuffed to the brim. The other remained pressed against my front door a frame. Everything about him was alarming. That smile that made my skin crawl. He looked young, but his skin seemed dry and stretched, as though he had gone through some sort of horribly botched surgery and everything had been pulled back. Another few thunderous knocks broke the eerie silence setting the neighbor's dog into another brief frenzy. I was fully awake now, primal discomfort gnawing at my nerves as I racked my mind for an idea of what to do. I was awful in emergency situations, and while there was technically no emergency yet, my mind was already entering panic mode. Yet another ring nearly made me jump from my skin, sustained this time as the man held the button down for almost a minute, the urgency of his attempts increasing. Hello? I spoke into my phone before I could think better of it, voice shaking despite my best attempts. As ridiculous as it is in hindsight, my immediate focus was ceasing the clamor before it woke the neighbors. Had I been thinking clearly, perhaps I would have seen the benefit in that, and considered against alerting the strange man to my presence. His head tweaked to the right, just a bit adopting an odd tilt, the grin stretching slightly. The skin around his mouth seemed to rip off at points, painful red cuts appearing from the cracked skin. Hello. He spoke, an unusual crackle of distortion in the audio accompanying his words. His voice, it sounded wrong, hollow and raw as if from disuse. I shuddered, an icy chill traveling through my bones raising goosebumps along my skin. His speech was jilted and unusual, as though he were simply repeating something that he had heard before in an unfamiliar tongue. I have a delivery. He almost hissed the words, raising the bag out for the camera to see. I could see it leaking, a liquid which was indiscernible on camera, dripped from the bottom of the filthy canvas bag. The grin wavered slightly as he spoke, the corners of his mouth twitching as though he were struggling to not smile outright. My heart and mind raced in unison, my resolve of buckling under the growing sense of disquiet. Perhaps I was being crazy, the late hour in fact that I was alone making my mind run with paranoia, but something about how late he was arriving, paired with his strange appearance and even stranger behavior. I didn't want whatever he had brought me, especially not directly from him. And not to mention that bag. The more I looked at it, the less it looked like it held the singular cheese pizza that I had ordered. Clearly full to the brim was something that was leaking profusely. I don't need it anymore, thanks. I made that order a couple of hours ago. I did my best to inject confidence in my tone that I didn't feel. It's paid for already and I included a tip so you can just take it. I'm sorry for the trouble. He tilted his head more as though he were trying to mimic an owl, his grin stretching into a full-blown smile now, making visible two rows of abnormally large teeth, seemingly covered in rot and cavity by the dark splotches visible on the camera. No, no, I'm sorry for the trouble. His tone was odd and uneven, as if he were just repeating the words that he'd heard back at me. That voice like gravel dripping with malevolent humor. I have delivery. G- come get delivery. My breath caught in my throat for a moment as a cold, a spasm of fear washed over me at that. I don't want it. I spoke through gritted teeth to stop the shaking of my voice from being heard. If you have to drop it off for policy or whatever, then leave it and go, please. You have to open the door and come get your delivery. His voice came odd and warbled, sounding for a moment as though he were mocking my words. An idea emerged amidst the panic, a last-ditch effort at avoiding having to go to the door. I checked the camera, finding the man standing there closer than before, his crooked smile all that was visible of his face now, a row of unusually long, wide teeth, stained with what seemed like cavities filling his mouth. I took some security in the fact that he hadn't moved from the door, at least there I could keep an eye on him. Opening the phone again, I scrolled through the calls of the night prior redialing the number for Johnny's Pizza. The call was answered after a few rings. Johnny's Pizza, John speaking, how can I help you? An older man spoke into the phone, weariness woven into his tone. Yeah, hi, I... I paused, not quite sure of what to say for a moment. Crap, I thought. I told him everything. All about his employees' unusual behavior and the odd feeling that I was getting from him, apologizing in the off chance that he was suffering from some ailment. Is is there something wrong with him? I finally asked. He paused for several moments, and I could hear the clacking of a keyboard on the other end. One medium cheese at 913. That's you. Yes, I responded quickly. The man started ringing the doorbell again. And he just got there? Hmm. The man coughed, flicking a lighter on the other end. It's, it's Philip, right? He asked, sounding incredulous. I thought back to the name tag. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That, that don't sound like Philip. A little guy, squeaky clean, one of the most dependable employees that I've had in a while. Only one knot hopped up on some garbage on the late nights. The little guy. That was far from the word that I would use to describe the towering scarecrow of a man on my front porch. Still, he sounded worried, and I couldn't tell whether his words should quell or intensify my fears. I've been trying to reach the little guy for a while now. Just figured he had gone AWOL on me. Not uncommon with the worth ethic of this generation, but it seemed odd for him. Are you saying that he arrived just recently? Yeah, a little after 3 a.m. I think he may be on something. His skin looks sickly and his hair looks covered in sweater grease or something and... Oh lord, John interrupted. The sudden shift in his tone made my heart drop. Fear palpable in his voice. His eyes, what do his eyes look like? Does he blink? My stomach twisted into cold knots at the question. I racked my mind for an answer and, realizing that I had none, quickly moved the phone from my ear, opening the camera app. Sudden coils of shock and horror seized in my chest. The man stood mere inches from the camera, his face filling the screen to horrific effect. His eyes... I could feel the urge to hyperventilate taking hold of my heart, racing painfully. Jesus Christ, there's something wrong with them. I spoke frantically as I watched the unblinking nightmare of a face. They're small and dark and there's nothing, no white nothing. They were like those of a shark, two small points amongst the canvas of papery skin, obsidian black and oddly far apart. Despite the lack of iris, I could somehow feel his gaze burned through the screen. That smile, though unchanged, suddenly somehow far more menacing. Dread was beginning to overwhelm me wholly. That face breeding such visceral feelings of horror, the likes of which I'd only known in a nightmare. I'm sorry, ma'am, I truly am, but I can't help you. Dear lord, you shouldn't have called here. What? What do you mean he's your employee? What's going on I need? I'm sorry, dear lord, I truly am. He interrupted his tone firm and apologetic, but tinged with a level of fear that seemed almost equal to my own. I could feel the questions piling up, the dam ready to burst. But I can't help you. I may be in grave danger now just talking to you. Who knows what those things? What are you talking about? Please, you're kind of freaking me out more. What things? I've owned this business for a long time, lived in this town even longer, heard a lot of strange things, seen a few that have aged me faster. I wanted to dismiss his words as some small-town superstitious garbage, but the stark seriousness with which he spoke made it clear to me that he was very serious. I'm sorry, ma'am, but that thing at your door... It ain't Philip anymore and I can't help you. Please don't call here again. I'm sure it's already listening. Lord, help us both if it is. I'm truly sorry and good luck. And with that, the call ended with a chime. I sat there for several long moments, feeling almost like I was falling. My hand shook, the phone still beside my face, eyes locked on the ground ahead. Mind racing with strange and terrifying thoughts, utterly shell-shocked. I wasn't sure what I had expected, but that wasn't it. The call had left me shaken in a way that I can't quite express. The idea that I wasn't dealing with someone, but something petrified me. It ain't Philip anymore, what did that mean? Was he on some kind of messed up drug or was it something worse? Whatever the case, any doubts that I had had about whether or not he may be violent vanished at the horror in that man's voice. Another ring, loud and sustained as though he was holding down the bell, pierced the silence that fell between the fists of knocking. A cold mass of dread settled in my gut. I opened the security camera. The skin seemed to pulse and contort at points as though there were some unheard of muscles spasming wildly beneath. The man, that thing, grit its teeth from side to side, and I could see just how impossibly large they were, as though meant for the mouth of a creature three times his size. A mouthful of massive dull incisors grinding back and forth. Finally he spoke, and I almost felt as though that I may pass out, the panic reaching a fever pitch, I'm in grave danger you shouldn't ha- have called. It was as though two voices came from one body at first, his dry and human tone mixing with a voice at first like some eerie parody of the man I had spoken to, quickly improving with each syllable. Clunky at first, but by the end, it was almost indistinguishable. The only audible difference was the sheer maliciousness dripping from every word. This isn't happening. I muttered to myself in vain. The impossibility of what I was hearing hitting like a physical blow. How could he have known that I was calling someone? That aside his voice that was more than a mere impression. He had spoken with the man's exact voice. The increasingly unavoidable realization that my night had somehow drifted into the realm of paranormal made my stomach turn. I felt as though I might vomit. Open door or I come inside. Had I not been operating on survival mode I may have thought against another call, given how the last one had unfolded. But at that moment I felt almost cornered and getting help was my only concern. I opened the phone again, pausing for several moments considering whether to call my wife or the police. Another series of raucous knocking making the decision for me. I dialed 911, getting the number ready by making sure not to call and switching back to the security app. Fear betrayed the confidence that I tried to portray, my voice shaking despite my effort. Listen, the police are coming, I've already called them. Just take your stuff and go, you creep. He laughed, a callous and unearthly sound that twisted my stomach into a heavy knot of dread, dripping with malevolent glee at my remark. His body quaked with his shrieking laughter as though what I had said had brought unbridled joy. In an instant, he snapped his head into the upright position with a sickening pop. I felt ill. The skin moved like there was something beneath it as though he were smiling or frowning beneath it as it clung to his face. I shuddered at the uncanniness of it. Something about his face triggering a primal unease. Was he wearing a mask? No, it couldn't be. I could tell that was human skin as pale and lifeless as it may seem. No. It cackled in that dry voice. No one is coming. I have delivery." The blood in my veins froze. I switched back to the phone screen, clicking the call button and switching it to the speaker. The passing of every second was marked by the pounding of my heartbeat in my head as I waited for the phone to ring. Seconds passed with nothing but silence on the other end, and I could feel the sense of panic that was almost suffocating starting to arise before I heard a sudden click on the other end, followed by a voice. Hello? The dispatcher calmly said. Relief flooded through me like cool water over a burn at the sound of the woman's voice on the other end, though I felt an odd tweak of confusion at the casual nature of her answer. Yes, hi, I would like to report, uh, I searched for the proper term. A disturbance? I spoke, somewhat unsure. The line buzzed with a crackle of electronic interference. There's a man at my door, I think he's a pizza guy and he's been banging and knocking and ringing for a while now. I ordered it last night and I told him to leave it at the door because something just seems off about this guy. But he won't leave until I come to the door and... I paused, realizing that I was beginning to ramble from the panic. I composed myself and did my best to detail the events of the night leading up to my call. I see, man, this sounds very serious. She interjected. She sounded humorous, almost mocking. Her tone was a far cry from the firm seriousness that I had come to expect from television shows and movies. Was she really not taking this seriously? I felt a flash of anger amidst the fear. Nothing that I had told her was at all far-fetched and I truly wasn't in a mood for convincing. I just wanted help on the way immediately. Is there anybody else in the house with you, ma'am? Her overly cheerful voice carried a robotic tint, the call's connection seemingly poor. No, I'm alone. I see, she said. And something in the way she spoke raised my hackles. An exaggerated exuberance in every word as though she were talking to a child. Well, perhaps you ought to answer the door, ma'am. I'm sure he'll leave once he's completed his delivery. She said, laughing casually before finishing. We've all got jobs to do after all. It was like being struck by a physical blow. My mind reeled at the response. I opened my mouth but found myself at a loss for a moment, taken aback by the unexpected response. I stared at the phone as though it would provide me with a physical answer, and for the first time since the call had started, the phone came to life with the movement. As I saw the words on the screen my heart plummeted and I could feel my blood turn to ice. Call failed. The words sat on the white screen above, the number 911, my head spinning as I saw them. Ma'am? The friendly voice of the dispatcher came from over the phone, suddenly seeming far more sinister than before. My hand shook uncontrollably, worsening the more that I tried to stop it, as confusion gave way to cold, mind-numbing dread. You should answer the door. He has a delivery and he's not going to leave you until you've accepted it." She spoke and that overly sweet voice dripped with a sinister venom. And as I listened I realized that I could hear something else behind it. Another voice, familiar though I had only heard it for the first time that night. She spoke in unison, her tone blended with the raspy voice in an awful union. It could be much worse if you don't. The threat was punctuated by more pounding at the door, this time without end. The clamorous knocking combined with the audible thud of my own heart. The sheer horror of what I was experiencing only compounded. It was like a waking nightmare, each passing event more inexplicable than the last until eventually, I knew that I was undeniably dealing with something out of the ordinary. I had never really thought too much about the supernatural one way or the other before. I didn't dismiss all the stories that I had heard, but I couldn't quite say that I believed them either. But as I sat in my bed, my mind racing with questions like a babbling brook, I knew now that whatever was at my door was something inhuman. I could think of few other options and the fact that inevitably I would have to confront that man that thing at my door crashed over me in tidal waves. The thought of calling Lucy came across my mind, but I dismissed it immediately. I refused to hear it speaking in her voice. I knew that it would push me over the edge of panic, long past the point of rational thought. I may have been already. I rose from the bed, darting to the closet and rifling through clothes until I found what I was looking for. Tucked into a corner hidden behind one of the still-packed boxes was my wife's gun safe. It had been among her insisted security measures now that we were living in our own house and I was thankful for it now. I racked my mind for the code, the incessant banging returning like some awful chime somehow raising the to suffocating tension with each passing second. I punched in a few options, and on the third, it clicked open and I removed the familiar handgun and the accompanying clip. Using it was a last resort. I had never trained with it as much as Lucy, for whom weekend trips to the range had been something of a leisure activity, and was only partially confident that I could hit anything with it, but it was better than nothing. Still, the thought of using it somehow filled me with a more familiar sort of discomfort. Its weight was uncomfortable in my hand. The idea that I was holding something capable of destroying life with just the twitch of a finger was well. I had to not think about it. I held it as I remembered Lucy demonstrating, finger lengthwise along the side of the weapon, away from the trigger keeping it at my side. Mustering what little resolve I had left, bolstered slightly by the firm sensation of the metal in my hand, I opened the door to my bedroom. The darkness of the rest of the house made its halls seem like ominous corridors, pierced only by the faint glow of a lamp in the corner of the living room, the floor below. Our home suddenly felt very unfamiliar, the air heavy and foreboding. It took everything that I had to push forward towards these stairs, every groan of the old floorboards beneath the carpet under my weight, making me cringe at the thought that he could hear me. I took each of the twelve steps with a tense carefulness, each step bringing me closer to the first floor, closer to the door just around the corner and the alpha man behind it. The anxiety had reached a fever pitch, my heart racing so fast that I began to wonder if it was truly possible to have a fear induced heart attack at my age, a storm brewing in the dark cloud hanging over me. A chill traveled through me as my foot met the cool marble beneath, the temperature in the air dropping noticeably as I stepped from the stairs and into the foyer, and for a horrifying moment, my mind flashed at the horrifying possibility that there was a window open somewhere, but as I approached the front door I quickly realized that wasn't the case. The air near the front door hung heavy with an icy chill, noticeably colder than the rest of the house. The three small windows at the side of the door were stained of some black ichor, the vague shapes of handprints and finger smudges streaking it randomly Three spaced-out knocks rang out with an eerie finality as soon as the door was in my sight, sending a nauseating sensation rippling through me. My stomach was twisted into uncomfortable knots, dread reaching its boiling point with every step closer to the door. Every limb felt weak, the shaking in my arms and legs beyond my control, and I prayed that I didn't fire by accident. I almost felt ready to collapse as I reached the door, pressing myself against it for balance, nearly stumbling away at the unnatural cold of it. Three quick taps against the glass of the window above the door, the final tapering off into a grating scratch, made me jump and press myself against the door. My breath caught in my throat as I looked up through the window a good seven feet from the ground, catching sight of the man's pale hand sliding slowly down the center. Unless he was standing on something which I doubted, his arm had reached far past what should have been possible for any human, let alone what I had seen in the camera. I suppose I shouldn't have needed any more confirmation that whatever I was dealing with wasn't fully human. But somehow, that drove it home. I pulled back the barrel of the gun mimicking what I could recall seeing Lucy do, and swallowed firmly against the rising nausea in my gut. The click of the lock as I turned it made my heart plummet, my chest filling with both an icy horror and a conflicting surge of adrenaline. Before I could convince myself otherwise, I tightened my grip on the weapon and opened the door. I spun from around the door, raising the gun to meet the thing on my porch with its shaking hands and squinted eyes, bleary from nervous tears. My heart burned with a searing adrenaline, the sound of its frantic beating heavy in my ears, and my stomach flipped, and I prepared as much as I could be to see that figure looming over me, that awful grinning face inches from my own. But there was Nothing. I stood there for a few tense moments, gun-raised, staring out at our street of this silent subdivision. Nothing but a few parked cars and trees moving in the cool breeze in my sight. I remained there for a few moments as the panic slowly waned, giving way to an intoxicating mix of hope caught with a bit of suspicion. Was he gone? The thought was like a candle in a room that had been blanketed for far too long in darkness. A ray of hope, I had to be sure. My every muscle felt tight with anxious anticipation as I stepped out onto the porch, greeted immediately by a wet plop and a waft of some awful scent. It didn't take a genius to identify it, the reek of blood and feces, the fetid stench of death. I looked down to see my white slipper now stained a deep red, my foot at the center of a pile of dark, coagulating liquid that had pooled over the welcome mat, likely from whatever the contents of the bag were. "'Gross,' I spat, retching slightly as I kicked my foot in a vain attempt to rid it of the awful mix. My eyes watering and stomach bubbling, I stepped out and over the puddle making sure to avoid it as I scanned my front lawn. There was no sign of the strange man or whatever he had come to deliver, Slowly but surely, the cool rush of hope began to trickle through me, as silence seemed to reclaim the night. Icy dread rolled through me, making my skin crawl as I heard three fleshy pops ring out from behind me, from inside the house. For a brief moment, I agonized over what to do, turning slowly to face the person or creature in my home, ready at any moment for the attack. It stood barely five feet away, partially concealed by the darkness of the house. But enough of it was visible for me to realize how much of its horrific appearance the camera had failed to fully impart. Its head hung to the side at an impossible angle. The smile stretching across it, inhuman, a thin gray mouth lined with razor-sharp teeth, grinned visibly beneath what appeared to be a human mask. No, not a mask, a skin. It clicked immediately. He was wearing poor Philip's skin. His head was massive, swollen and malformed, and where there should have been a nose, the skin hung loosely as if whatever was beneath it were flat. It held the delivery bag in one of its arms, which extended far longer than it should have, opening it to reveal the contents within. I couldn't help myself, the violent churn of my stomach hardly gave me enough warning as I saw why the bag was leaking so much, and vomit spewed forth once and then twice. From within the bag I could make out the tangle of broken limbs, difficult to identify at first as the skin had seemingly been entirely degloved. But when my eyes fell on the face staring back at me, red, angry flesh exposed. I knew immediately that I was seeing the horrific remains of the original driver. Here, it took a long deep breath, the skin over the center of his face shuddering as the sound broke the silence, head tilting back with a long, euphoric shudder. It stepped forward, on legs long and ungainly extending far past the jeans it must have taken from Philip, stalking forward. What do you want? What do you want? Why me? I had reached a tipping point, a fear giving way to sheer exhaustion. I was tired of this. A regular night had been turned into a horror movie and I wanted answers from the thing responsible even if it killed me. I want... I want to do my job, please. Just leave me alone, oh God. It started speaking with that same hoarse inhuman croak. But quickly it morphed into the voice of a young man pleading, desperate and raw with horror that I had never heard before but very much felt. It took me only a few moments to realize what was happening. It was mocking me. I wasn't going to get an answer, in fact, I doubted it even had one besides the fact that Philip had somehow caught its attention. And since he had been en route to my house, I had become next for its sick designs. Its long arms seemed to retract, sliding across the floor with a faint hiss. Long, dark claws that seemed to fit for some sort of predatory animal protruded through the skin of its hand, which I quickly realized had also been taken from Philip, worn like a tattered glove. The chill of the metal from the gun at my waist brought it back to my attention, and before I realized my hand was slowly moving towards my hip, My breathing felt ragged and uneven with every painful throb of my heart. Its head tilted further, the thin smile on the mottled gray skin beneath its nightmarish mask widening as its muscles tensed with awful intent. I burned an image of Lucy into my mind, knowing if these were my final moments, I wanted to be as close to spending it with her as possible. My hand went for the gun. The air was pierced by a cry of something like that of an infant, but deep and distorted, raising every hair along my back, and sent my stomach into free fall as my hand closed around the handle. Furious hope surged through me with the weight of a weapon in my grip as I pulled it from my waistband, doused immediately by a tidal wave of sheer dread as I saw it. It was on me in seconds, crossing the room and over at me in blinding speed. Panic guided my every action as I turned and pointed the gun, firing in the same instant, no time to aim. My ears rang from the explosive sound, momentarily disoriented before I felt a sharp pan exploding through my arm. Icy fingers covered in claws the size of my thumb digging into my forearm. I missed. It had caught me in time forcing my arm up and making me shoot off towards the ceiling uselessly. A spray of drywall burst forth as the bullet ripped through. It tightened its grip, and it took all that I had to not scream with the excruciating pain. My arm was surely broken, the thought was fleeting. The realization that I was surely going to die far more pressing... It yanked me closer, its face mere inches from my own an overwhelming reek of decay wafting from its mucus-covered skin. It made a long and guttural clicking from its throat as it smelled me, those beady eyes shining with malice. always taste the best when afraid, it spoke. I shut my eyes, unwilling to see whatever was happening next, bracing myself for what was to come. Sharp pain radiated out from the bottom of my jaw as I felt its claw pierce my skin with an almost surgical carefulness, slowly sliding beneath. It was going to tick my face, just as it had the poor driver. I felt a scream rising in my throat. The ringing in my ears grew louder and I wondered if the shot hadn't caused permanent damage. Not like it would matter for long. I felt its sticky breath on my face, rancid with the smell of blood and rot, its fingers sliding beneath my skin, blood down my neck. The ringing grew louder as I waited for the burst of pain, louder and nearer. I realized with the first surge of real hope that I had felt that night, it was the sound of approaching sirens. As I opened my eyes, I could see the distant glow of flashing red and blue from somewhere nearby. Its gaze snapped up in the direction of the approaching sound and it hissed, frustrated fury palpable. From what I could tell, the sirens were coming from the opening of the subdivision, barely a minute from my house. Its grip tightened as it drew me closer, whispering a final message in my ear. "'See you again.' As two squad cars rounded the bend into our cul-de-sac, it tossed me aside and into the wall with force, and I hit the ground with a thud of landing in the ever-growing puddle of liquid spreading from Philip's body. It shot me a final glance, shuddering with something unreadable before it threw itself over the side of the porch, disappearing into the darkness and into the trees of the small forest behind the house. By the time I gathered myself, stumbling back to my feet and onto the front lawn, waving frantically and screaming until my throat hurt as the flashing red and blue lights filled the night, my mind was in a state of blind panic, any worries of causing a disturbance long in the rear view at that point, solely focused on getting around other people and away from whatever I had just encountered. A few of the more brave of my curious neighbors had begun streaming out of their front doors, watching the commotion that I was making with concern and interest, others peering from cracks in the curtains. I wondered to myself if anybody had been watching before, if anybody had seen that thing besides me but dismissed the thought as officers began questioning me. Apparently they had been caused by a neighbor who had reported a noise disturbance from all the knocking. So when a follow-up call came about shots fired, they were already nearby. The police were far less helpful than I would have hoped, though at that point the mere fact that I was alive and not shoved into a foot-long pizza bag was cause enough for celebration. They searched the house and found nothing, and upon searching the doorbell camera, found the footage had somehow been wiped. The EMTs cared for my injuries, asking questions. As to how I had attained the strange wound under my jaw. As though something had been inserted there. And I wasn't sure how to answer. I told my story to the officers whose reactions ranged from skepticism as the most common. To an almost knowing sort of look that seemed to pass between a few of the older guys. As we wrapped up I placed a call to my wife. She was asleep so I left a voicemail explaining what happened and reminding her how much I utterly adored her given how close I had come to never being able to say it again. I spent the rest of that night at a local motel, taking a much-needed shower and didn't sleep very much at all, not even returning home until Lucy's trip had ended. Things progressed as normally as one could expect in the weeks afterwards. The police weren't much help the few times that I had gone to them for updates, and I quickly began to suspect that they may be hiding something, that there may be something more to what I experienced. That is sort of why I'm writing this. I've been doing my best to move on from that night, as ridiculous as that might seem. It's strange how quickly you can begin to rationalize the irrational once the moment is passed. And since moving out wasn't an option given the money that we had just put into the home, I had no option but to cope. Things were fine, normal, and I had been content to try and leave the event a nightmare until yesterday morning. Last night, I heard news that made my stomach drop. It echoed from the TV in the living room as I prepared my dinner, finding ordering out quite unappealing since my experience when a name caught my attention. Thanks, Hal. Our next story comes from the small town of Cold Lake, Illinois, where tragedy appears to have struck a local pizzeria. Johnny's Pizza has been a longtime fixture of the town. Its owner, John McCLennan was something of Cold Lake royalty. Well, reports from law enforcement tell us here at LNPN that our town's king of pizza was found dead in his pizzeria last night. My heart dropped as did the cooking utensils in my hand as I quickly made my way to the living room. Initial reports indicate that he was found, and I do warn our sensitive viewers now before I continue. Flayed, but just barely alive. Police say he had been somehow shoved into one of the pizza ovens. He would pass away from trauma-related injuries hours later at the hospital. As of right now, the CLPD have no suspects. And now here's Tammy with the weather. My head seemed to spin, nausea rising while my mind reeled as from the murky depths of memory the man's words from our call echoed. I'm sure it's already listening. Lord help us both if it is. I may be in grave danger now just talking to you. That's why I'm writing this now. I don't really know what else to do with my guild but perhaps give someone the warning that I never had. If the pizza arrives after 3 a.m., don't answer. Ask them to leave it if you must, but do not answer the door and for the love of God, don't call anyone. That's it for now. I apologize for the rushed ending, but I would like to hurry and get this posted. The security camera system on the door is still down and Lucy's at work, and I can't be sure if I think I just heard a knock at the door. With the busy fall season already in swing, you might be looking for some wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up, too while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Factors, fresh never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Choose from more than 34 weekly, flavor-packed, fresh, and never-frozen meals. Plus, Factor also offers calorie-conscious options as well. Try delicious, calorie-smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. Plus, with Factor, you can rest assured that you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood and their meals. Head to factormeals.com slash mrcreeps50 and use code mrcreeps50 to get 50% off. That's code MrCreeps50 at factormeals.com slash MrCreeps50 to get 50% off. I'm a private investigator. I received an email about a boy who went missing. Written by Ren Ryder. Old lady in her 60s searching for her missing son. That was the subject of an email that had arrived in my inbox a few weeks ago. It was a job offer the nurse of said old lady explained in a few short lines. Her contact details were listed below. By that point, I had been working as a private detective for a year and a half. I was always surprised when somebody actually contacted me about a real case. The job's nowhere near as fancy as it sounds. Movies depict private detectives as desperados or outcasts who go after the cases the police can't or won't touch. Reality is an entirely different story and much more mundane. Half of my cases concerned missing pets, the other half usually involved spouses suspected were being cheated on. I rarely get any serious work and I'm always strapped for cash. Of the few real cases that I got over the years, those concerning missing people were by far my least favorite. You never knew if you would find anything. Sometimes the missing person was long dead. Sometimes they've got a reason for hiding and in other cases, you come up with a big flat zero. If any of those is the case, it's always a hassle to get the client to pay up. When I looked at my empty calendar and thought about my similarly empty bank account, I knew that I couldn't be picky. I gave the nurse Stephanie a call and told her that I would accept the case and arranged for a meeting. A few days later, I went on the three-hour trip to the old lady's distant home. When I arrived in front of a grand, lavish mansion, my eyes grew wide. At first, I thought that I'd gotten the address wrong. But after cross-checking, I knew that I was in the right place. I followed a paved path through a rich and well-kept garden. As my eyes wandered around, I couldn't help but think of my measly two-room apartment. To say that I was jealous was an understatement. I guess some people just have it all. Rich people, to be precise. For a moment, I shuffled around in front of the door awkwardly, making sure my cheap clothing looked as presentable as possible and then I rang the doorbell. A chime reminiscent of some classical music piece played on for almost half a minute before Stephanie, a friendly middle-aged woman, opened the door. Oh, it's so nice to finally meet you, mister. She furrowed her brow, trying hard to remember my name. Sybert. I helped her out. Oh dear, I'm so sorry, I don't know how. It's fine. I cut her off, giving her a well-meaning nod. Where's the old lady? Stephanie's friendly smile wavered and was soon replaced by a contemplative expression. I'm afraid Miss Annalise isn't doing well. She said as she led me inside and down a luxurious hallway. The floor was made of tiled marble. The wallpaper was richly decorated and expensive looking paintings lined the walls. As I followed Stephanie, I couldn't help but look around. If she noticed my odd, wide-eyed expression, she was discreet enough to pretend she didn't. After a little while, she stopped at a door to our right and led me into a small study. For a few moments, Stephanie was quiet and shuffled around before she sighed. To be honest with you, Mr. Seibert, I took the liberty of offering you this job without consulting Mrs. Annalise. I gave her a questioning look. I had had a bad feeling the moment that I had seen the mansion, and I didn't like where this was going one bit. Her son's disappearance was never easy on her. Over the years, over the decades, her condition has only worsened. By now. She broke off, shaking her head and blinked away tears. By now, she's almost catatonic. We can pay her a visit, but I doubt she's in any condition to even talk to you. I was at a loss for words. What even was this? If the old lady didn't know what was going on, then who would pay me? Still, I followed Stephanie along as she led me to a heavy hardwood door at the end of the hallway. It opened with a loud creak and we stepped into a richly furnished room. One wall was covered by a huge and beautiful landscape, the other in an ornamented shelf containing an innumerable amount of leather-bound tomes. Yet my attention quickly drifted to the tiny old lady at the other end of the room. She sat in an expensive armchair much too big for her. She did not look up when we entered, didn't even seem to realize that we were there. Instead, her eyes were almost entirely empty as she stared out of the room's single window. Mrs. Annalise, Stephanie called out, but the old lady did not react. While I waited near the door, Stephanie approached her. She whispered something inaudibly into the old lady's ear, but once more there was no reaction. Then her head slowly moved in my direction, and her sunken yellowed eyes focused on me. For a few moments we stared at each other before her head turned back to the window. She didn't say a single word. After a few moments, Stephanie returned to my side and gently led me outside and back to the study. "'I'm sorry, but Mrs. Annalise gave up hope a long time ago,' she said, her voice heavy with pity. "'Excuse me, Stephanie, if I may ask, but then why this entire investigation?' "'Oh, it's simple, really. I've worked for Mrs. Annalise for a decade and a half now. She might not talk much anymore, given her condition.' But she never mistreated me. You wouldn't know, but she has a kind soul. She always treated me like family. For a moment, she had to gather herself before she would continue. When the doctors told me she doesn't have much longer, I thought that I would be able to give back to her. I know the chances are slim, but maybe her son's out there somewhere. If she could at least see him one last time, I think it would help her make peace. I gave her a weak smile and nodded. Now then, Stephanie suddenly blurted out and picked up a small stack of photographs. "'That's her boy, little Marcus,' she said and handed them to me. I couldn't help but frown when I saw them. I had expected this to be the case of an estranged family member, a son who had left home after coming of age and never to return. The boy in the picture, however, was young Almost a toddler, no older than three. When I looked back at Stephanie, she gave me an expectant look, almost as if I would be able to magically solve the case from the picture alone. When she realized this wouldn't be the case, she seemed disappointed for a moment, but spoke up again. He went missing on the 7th of April in 1988. I tried talking to Mrs. Annalise, but it wasn't much use. This folder here, though, She went on and took a heavy folder from a cabinet. It contains all their private research over the years. Everything she thought could be related to her son's disappearance. I'm not sure how helpful it'll be, but here you go. And with that, she pushed the folder towards me. I opened it and leafed through the contents for a few moments. I saw a birth certificate, an old police report about a missing child, and an almost infinite number of newspaper clippings. Thanks, I'll see what I can do I told her as I picked up the folder About the payment, I continued I usually get paid via Oh, don't worry, Mr. Sybert. she cut in I already arranged for you to be paid an entire month's worth Should the investigation last longer, we can talk about the details then I gave her a surprised look and almost blurted out an objection But I bit my tongue My clients usually paid me by the hour, or once the contract was fulfilled. It felt wrong to go along with this, but I could really use the money. Thank you, Stephanie. I'll do my best to find out what happened to the boy, I finally said, trying to sound as enthusiastic as possible. In reality, though, I was anything but about the case. You can call me anytime. Stephanie said as she led me to the front door. Or you can send me one of those emails. I think you young people prefer them. She added, laughing. Back in the car, I thought about the bits of information that I had gotten so far. Would I even be able to find anything? That little boy went missing over 30 years ago. Wouldn't all this be nothing but a wasted effort? and then I remembered that she had already paid me and a heavy sigh had escaped my mouth. Guess I could at least give it a try. When my eyes wandered to the massive folder on my passenger seat, however, I knew that I had a long night ahead of me. Once I was home, it was already early evening. I considered ordering myself some food, but considering my monetary situation, I settled on a quick microwave dinner. Afterward, I prepared myself a terribly strong cup of coffee and began working through the folder. The birth certificate told me the boy was born in 1985. He would be in his mid-30s by now, of Caucasian ethnicity, blue eyes, and most likely brown or blonde hair. Great, I thought. That description fit at least half the guys my age in the entire country. Heck, even I had blue eyes and dark blonde hair. The first thing that I did was to check social media. I knew that it was most likely futile, but there had been a case that would have proven much easier if I had started with a simple Facebook search. By now, I made it a part of my routine to check out every single one of the more popular social networks. In the end, I found nothing like I had expected. My next step was to check out a few other public databases. Stay friends and the likes. I searched for both the child's date of birth and his name. Once more, I found nothing. It was early morning when I had finished going through the entire folder. My first hunch had proven correct. Most of it wasn't helpful at all. Instead, it painted a terribly desperate and sad picture of a mother whose child had gone missing. As I lay in bed, I wondered what that little boy's life would be like today. If I found him, would he even remember his real mother? Would he even want to get in contact with her? It was a topic that always hit close to home since I had been adopted. I remembered nothing about my biological parents. Mom and Dad had told me so while that I was still a child. I had always respected them deeply for it. Yet I had always felt my parents were a bit too different. They were both driven people, sometimes a bit too driven. Mom had become a toughened businesswoman in her time. Dad, on the other hand, had worked his way up to become the chief of police. Compared to them, I always felt a bit like a loser, an underachiever. Once more, I couldn't help but wonder if Marcus would even want to get in contact with a woman that he didn't remember. Heck, a woman that was catatonic and dying if I could trust Stephanie's words. How would he handle such news? Was he the type to ignore the entire thing? Those thoughts stayed on my mind until I had drifted off to sleep. Missing persons cases really were the worst. The next day, I went on with my work. It was time to get serious. I went through the folder once more and gathered what few files I thought might be useful. After I had gotten a hold of the old police report, I went through all their personal notes. However much I searched, nothing seemed to have come of it. No hint of the child, no further investigation, just nothing. Eventually, in my frustration, I paid the local station a visit. I was well known there, I was the son of the former chief of police. But there was also my failed attempt at joining the forest two years ago. By now, I was a regular there, even if most people weren't too fond of me. I always felt their eyes watching me and I could almost hear them scoff and whisper about my occupation and the reason for picking it. One person who did like me was Susan. I could see her wide face and greasy hair the moment that I entered. As always, she sat in the back, wore her thick spectacles, and did her best to hide herself behind her computer screen. When I had made it halfway across the hall, she noticed me, and gave me a bright, welcoming smile. She was always happy to see me, but for reasons that made me more than uncomfortable. To be honest, I didn't like her very much, and to say she wasn't my type would be an understatement. She was, however, always willing to help me out, and give me the occasional bit of information that I normally wouldn't be able to get my own hands on. New case, Daniel. She asked in her screechy voice, giving me a bright smile and smacking her lips at me. I had to fight the urge to shudder whenever she did this and tried my best to return her smile. You know it, Susan. I eventually said and handed her the police report. Going to be a tough one. She gave me a questioning look but when I pointed at the date of the report I saw her frown. 1988? She said in astonishment. You think you're going to find anything? I shrugged. No clue but that's why I'm here you mind helping me out a bit?" Once more I smiled at her and for a second I could see her blush before she hid her face from me. Well, I'll see what I can find. She mumbled nervously. For long minutes I listened to the sound of her typing and clicking erratically before I heard a quiet, bingo. A moment later she printed out a handful of papers and handed them to me. Quite the case you got yourself this time. She said, going through her hair. A rain of dandruffs descended upon the floor. What do you mean? I asked, trying my hardest to ignore what I had just witnessed. Read it. Seems like you got yourself involved in an old kidnapping. Without another word, I began reading through the papers. The kidnapping happened on a Thursday afternoon. Mrs. Annalise had picked up her son at a kindergarten in a small town near her home like every day the two of them walked back to her mansion. That day, a car came to a halt next to them on a small side street. Before she could react, the car door opened, the boy was dragged inside, and the car vanished. It all happened within mere minutes. I looked at Susan, who gave me a told-you-so look. I cursed at myself. Stephanie had said nothing about a kidnapping. Why hadn't she mentioned it? This changed everything. The description of the kidnapper didn't help either. It was vague. Strong, tall, most likely male, that was all. It happened so fast that she had barely gotten a chance to look at the perpetrator, but she had sworn that they had worn a disguise. Even worse, there had been no other witnesses. What made things even more complicated was the car used in the kidnapping, The vehicle had been reported stolen a few days prior. When it was found, no hints of the kidnappers remained. No prints, no DNA evidence, nothing. As I read through the file, one thing was obvious. All the details pointed at this having been planned long beforehand. A small street, no witnesses, a disguise, a stolen vehicle. The question was, why? The first thing that came to my mind was money. I read through the file once more, but I found no mention of a ransom note. If this had been planned, there would have been a reason for it. If not money, then what? Finally, I thanked Susan in a few words, and without waiting for a reply or another awkward attempt at flirting, I went on my way. Once I was back in the car, I gave Stephanie a call. She greeted me as friendly as when I had arrived at the mansion. After a quick greeting, however, I caught right to the chase. Why didn't you tell me the boy was kidnapped? On the other end of the line I heard Stephanie gasp. Kidnapped? Yeah, little Marcus didn't just disappear, he was taken. Oh goodness no, she brought out. I had no idea. Mrs. Annalise mentioned nothing like that. Are you sure, Mr. Seibert? I was just at the station. I got all the information about the investigation right in front of me. There's no doubt. Now, Stephanie, I think this was planned from longhand. Do you know if Mrs. Annalise and her husband had any enemies? For a moment, she was quiet. When she spoke again, I heard the audible concern in her voice, or was it apprehension? What do you mean, Mr. Seibert? Now, Mrs. Annalise has a lot of money, and I'm sure quite a few people are jealous of her. But I never... No, Stephanie, I don't think this had anything to do with money. I cut her off. There was no ransom note or any mention of money anywhere. Are you sure they didn't have any enemies and if not her, what about her husband or family? No, I will. There's that terrible thing that happened to Mr. James, but... What terrible thing? I cut her off again. Oh, maybe I should have told you before, but I never thought it was important. What are you talking about, Stephanie? Out with it. By now, I was getting annoyed at this woman and her timid, reserved character. Well, you know her husband, Mr. James, died, right? I knew. While most of the notes in the folder concerned her son, I had also seen a few about her husband's death. A newspaper article here, an obituary there, that kind of thing. But I hadn't taken a closer look at any of them. What Stephanie told me next, however, changed everything. It's such a terrible story. I think it was back in 1987. Mr. James was out for a walk and was hit by a car. There was nothing that anyone could do. The worst thing, however, is that they never identified the driver. Gosh, it's terrible just thinking about it. Hold on, are you serious? I thought none of this was important. What if it's the same people? Maybe they had a grudge against him or both of them for that matter. What if whoever ran over Mr. James is also responsible for the kidnapping? Come on, Stephanie. I didn't know about the kidnapping, Mr. Seibert, so I never thought. My God, if I had known, I... She broke off. I could hear her breathing and sobbing. When I heard it, my anger at the poor woman subsided. She was right. How could she have guessed that any of this was important? Heck, even I didn't know if it was. No, Stephanie, I'm sorry, you're right. You couldn't have known. I've got to hang up though, alright. There's a lot that I've got to think about. I'll call you again in case I need anything else. She gave a weak reply and wished me good luck before she hung up. I sat in my car, rubbing my temples. I couldn't be sure, of course, but something about this entire case smelled fishy. For a moment, I wondered what I had gotten myself involved with. Should I even continue this investigation? What if all of this was way bigger than I thought and, well, dangerous? As much as I liked the movie depictions of private detectives, I could do very well without those types of cases. Eventually, after sitting in my car for what must have been a half hour, I grudgingly went back into the station. Once more, I felt myself being watched by those arrogant co-workers. Susan was surprised to see me back so soon. This time, I made an effort to smile at her and to sweet talk her a little. After only a few minutes, I held the details of Mr. James' accident in my hands. When I read them, I learned yet another important detail. While they had identified the owner of the hit-and-run vehicle, the man had an alibi and it was revealed the car had gone missing the night before. For a long while, I stared at the sheet of paper in my hand, another stolen car. By now, I was sure this was no mere coincidence. No, this was all related. For the next few days, I tried to uncover more details about the kidnapping and the hit-and-run. Yet I came up with a big, fat zero. Sure, it had been over 30 years, but it was still strange. I even tried to find the owners of the stolen vehicles. But once more, nothing. I had hit a dead end. Eventually, I began thinking and decided on a different approach. If all this had been a case of revenge... Somebody must have headed out for Mrs. Annalise and her husband. Maybe I could find out who it was. When I thought about her mansion, I could only imagine how rich she must be. And what do all rich people have in common? I thought grinning to myself. They all have blood on their hands. I was still surprised how much I could find on the two of them. They had both been born to wealthy parents and had married in their early thirties. An old article described it as a match made in heaven, while another one called it a financial marriage and a clever business ploy. Their riches, however, didn't merely come from their parents. Even at 30, Mr. James had already been massively successful, owned half a dozen businesses in town, and was involved in at least twice as many. His reputation, however, wasn't the best, and after some digging, I found quite a few rumors about him. I read about unfair competition, mistreatment of workers, threats, and even a few investigations that came to nothing. This didn't stop the two of them from making a big show of themselves, a public appearance here, a fundraiser there, and the occasional lavish party at their mansion. After hours of digging through old newspaper articles, I had finally struck gold. It was an article about Mrs. Annalise and Mr. James. It was published in a small, shady tabloid that I had never heard about. The paper, if you can call it that, specialized in bad-mouthing people and spreading rumors. It might very well have been a predecessor of internet blogs and magazines that focused entirely on celebrity scandals and spreading rumors. It was the title of the piece that made me read on. Filthy Rich Couple Gets Away Stock-Free After Running Over a Pregnant Woman and Killing Her Unborn Child. As I read on, I learned the couple that attended one of their disgusting gatherings of the filthy rich. The two of them had supposedly been drunk beyond belief, as they drove their car through the city. When a woman tried to cross the street, the husband, in a drunken rage, didn't slow down and crashed right into her. From the way the article was written and the -the over-the-top vocabulary, I had assumed it was a deadly collision. Yet the woman had merely been grazed and had only gotten light injuries. Those had been enough, however, and later that night, she had lost her child at the hospital. I read the article once more, this time more carefully. But no names were mentioned except for those of Mrs. Annalise and her husband. For about an hour, I tried my best to find out more about the accident, but it was no luck. Other than in that shady tabloid, it was mentioned in nowhere. I cursed, it was the same all over again. In frustration, I banged my fists on my desk before I picked up my phone. I stared at it for a long moment before I dialed a Susan's number. After only two rings, she answered and I heard her chortle in surprise. When I told her that I called about work, her mood had dropped. She lamented about me only ever calling her to get information and not caring about her as a person. I rubbed my temples as I listened to another one of her little tirades. After a bit of pleading and telling her she was the only one who could help me, she obliged. I gave her the names of both Mrs. Annalise and her husband, as well as the date mentioned in the article. Susan promised that she would have a look, but said that it might take a while. After all there was real police work to do, she told me in a self-aggrandizing voice. Yeah, real police work, my butt, I thought. I knew that she had nothing to do and probably spent most of her days moping around behind her computer screen. As if to prove me right, she called me back not even an hour later. She was quick and to the point, told me she had found the police report in question and had already forwarded it to my email. Once more I thanked her for taking the time before I hung up. When I read the report, I was dumbfounded. It told a completely different story. Mrs. Annalise and her husband had been sober, and the woman had supposedly crossed the street with no regard for the oncoming car. Something about the report was weird. It was sloppy at best in short, almost too short. There was no mention of a pregnancy and not even the victim's name. The only information about the woman was that she wanted to remain anonymous. I reread read the last line twice. She wanted to remain anonymous. It's a freaking police report, isn't it? I might have failed the entrance exam twice, but... Even I knew you couldn't just ask to remain anonymous. And what about the tabloid story? If it was nothing but a smear piece then why turn an unimportant accident like this into a tragedy of such magnitude? There were enough other rumors about Mr. James. Nothing of this made any sense. I needed answers and all I had gotten so far was what ifs and more what ifs. It didn't take me long to get an idea. If I wanted to know what was up with this article, one person could definitely help me out. Finding the name of the tabloid's chief editor wasn't too hard. The paper might not have been popular with the public, but it had apparently been notorious in certain other circles. It had run for almost half a decade before it went out of business. The reasons were both monetary and publicly related. Guess you can only write smear pieces for so long before you get into trouble. I learned the man had long since retired but was still alive, and to my surprise, wasn't living far from here. Multiple lawsuits had reduced him to a state of abject poverty, and he was now living in an apartment even worse than mine. Once I had made it, I had to ring the doorbell for almost a minute until an angry old man had opened the door. He was small, almost withered, but surprised me with his flaring anger. What in God's name do you want? Am I talking to Mr. Meyer? The old man didn't react to my question. Instead, he continued ranting. ringing the doorbell for minutes at a time and you're asking this. I ought to throw that door right in your stupid face. Either way, I'm not interested in whatever it is you're trying to... Mr. Meyer, hold on. I cut him off. I'm not here to sell you anything. I came because of an article in your newspaper... The man's eyes turned wide for a moment and I prepared myself for another set of insults. Instead, he broke into bursting laughter. Newspaper, that's a good one. Had no one calling that piece of crap something like that. Ah, now then, who did I smear? Parents, grandparents. Come on out with it, I haven't gotten all day. No, it's not about that. I'm actually interested in finding out more about a traffic accident that you covered. For a moment, the old man was quiet, apparently surprised that I wasn't here for some sort of legal action. When I handed him a copy of the article in question, a smirk appeared on his face. Now that's a story, alright. Remember it to this day. Got in some real trouble for that one. Almost lost the paper then and there. That rich lady and her crook of a husband. Well, those things you wrote, are they true? You can bet they are. All my articles are true one way or another. This one, though, I swear by it. Got themselves drunk and ran her over, just like that. Those rich folks in there. Yeah, alright, but I've got a copy of the police report right here. I can show it to you. It states that it was the woman's fault and... I was cut off when he broke into another bout of bursting laughter. Can you believe it? You're as dumb as they come, aren't you? Isn't it clear what happened? They covered it up. Bought the police, the newspaper, everything. Couldn't risk a story like that getting out. Would be bad for business now, wouldn't it? Why do you think I printed it? I was quiet and kept myself from stating the obvious, but... The man must have noticed my reaction to his last question. Oh, I know well what you're thinking. That it's nothing but dirt, right? Let me tell you something... You might have that internet of yours now, but back in the day, there wasn't anything like it. Throw the chief a few grand, pay off the reporters, and that's it. Especially those two. God knows what else they were involved in. Alright, Mr. Meyer, do you have any information about the victim? I would really like to talk to her. Heck, if I know, I couldn't care less about her. Forgot the name the moment that I had printed the story. Heck, I might have never known it to begin with. Who knows, it's been over 30 years. A curse escaped my lips. The man noticed it but said nothing. Instead, he gave me an expectant look and extended his hand. I was about to reach out and take it, but before I could, he spoke up again. Now then, Mr. Private Detective, because that's what you are, right? How about a little something for my troubles? I couldn't help but stare at him in the disgusting, slimy grin that he gave me. Yet, I didn't move a muscle. For a few moments, he stared at me before a frown showed on his face. Cursing to himself, he turned around and threw the door in my face. As I made my way back to the car, I couldn't help but shake my head. Sitting in my car, I massaged my temples. Yet another mystery to add to the list. As I drove back home, I wondered if any of this was even relevant to the case. What was I even investigating at this point? God, if I knew. Once I was back, I wrote down all that I had found out so far and put it in the order that it had happened. 1. Mrs. Annalise and her husband run over a lady. She loses her child. 2. Two years later, her husband dies in a hit and run. The perpetrator is never caught and the car was stolen. 3. Another year later, her child gets kidnapped. Again, a stolen car is used. By now I wondered if little Marcus was even alive anymore. If this really was a case of revenge and somebody had indeed murdered Mr. James, why wouldn't they do the same to the child? I don't even want to think about something like that. One thing was clear, I needed to find out who the woman in the accident was. It was clear she was related to all of this. When I called Susan once more, she made it no secret that she was annoyed at me. She said she wasn't supposed to give me any of this information, and could even get in trouble for it. While I rolled my eyes, I gave her a mumbled apology and forced myself to tell her that. Maybe we should go on that date she mentioned so often. The moment she had heard those words, her anger had evaporated. I knew that I was being wrong, but I needed answers desperately. About that police report you sent me, do you think it's fishy? Uh, what do you mean, it's the police report, isn't it? Well, does Susan, but the name of the victim isn't even in it. I heard her fingers fly over the keyboard before she was quiet for a few moments. You know, I actually didn't read it. She sheepishly admitted. But you're right. Wants to remain anonymous, I've never read anything like this before. Her voice trailed off in contemplation. You think you can find out her name? Susan was quiet for a while. When she spoke again, her voice had turned into a conspiratorial whisper. No way. First, all of this happened over 30 years ago. Second, if there's no name here, then it's probably for a good reason. I don't know what you stumbled upon here, Daniel, but this looks bad. Well, are you going to do anything about it? What do you mean, wait, you think I'm going to investigate? There's no way I'm going to touch this. And anyway, I'm just a desk worker, IT. I can't just start an investigation on my own. May I guess you're right, I mumbled. Can you think of any other way to find out the woman's name? She was quiet again. I'm sorry, Daniel, but no, about that date, Would Friday. Before she could continue, I'd already hung up. Freaking useless, the bunch of them. For the rest of the day, I tried desperately to find out who the mysterious woman was. I called hospitals all over town, but nobody could help me. They either brushed me off by stating it was way too long ago, or just flat out refused. All throughout the night, I continued my attempts. I scoured the internet, desperate for information, yet nothing seemed to exist about that woman. I was at my wits' end. The next day, my desperation drove me back to Mrs. Annalise's mansion. Sure, she was old, but if anybody might remember the name of the woman, it was her. I knew Stephanie wouldn't be too pleased about it, but there was nothing else that I could do. The moment I turned up at the door, Stephanie was surprised to see me. She invited me in, but asked why I had driven all the way here instead of just calling. Well, Stephanie, I don't even know where to start this entire case has turned into something entirely different. Is this about Mr. James' accident and little Marcus's kidnapping? I sighed and shook my head. I wish, but what I'm here for is another part of the puzzle. With that, I told her about the night Mrs. Annalisa and her husband had supposedly run over a pregnant woman. Stephanie listened intently, but I soon saw her face contorted by shock and disbelief. There's no way, she started. You think any of this is true? That Mrs. Annalise and Mr. James... She broke off, shaking her head. i tell you what, Stephanie, I don't even know anymore. What I know for a fact is that this police report is fishy. I handed her a copy of the report, but only she stared at it for a few minutes before she looked back at me. Even so, now, why exactly are you here today, Mr. Seibert? I'm not sure I... I'm here for the name of that woman, and there's one person who might remember it. At first, Stephanie didn't seem to understand, but then she realized what I was implying. No, there's no way you can talk to her about something like that. Reminding her of it, of her husband, good God, no. I'm sorry, Mr. Sybert, but there's... Come on, Stephanie, I snapped at her. I've tried everything, every last thing. Stephanie didn't say a thing. Her face had turned into a hard mask. No discussion, she said. A moment later, I rushed past her, and before she could react, I was already halfway down the hallway. Mr. Seibert, what do you think you're doing? She called after me, but I didn't stop. The moment I put my hand on the door handle to the old lady's room, she shrieked after me. When I turned around, her entire body was trembling and her face was as white as a sheet. "'Please, Mr. Sybert," she said with tears in her eyes. "'If you talk to her about those things, we don't know what might.' My hand was still resting on the door handle, but I finally let go of it. What was I even doing? Eventually, I turned away from the door and walked back to Stephanie. "'All right, I won't talk to her, but if you truly think it'll put her at risk,' There's nothing I can do. When I said this, she relaxed and some of the color had returned to her face. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for understanding, Mr. Seibert. Yeah, but what about that woman? If I want to make any progress, I'll need a name. Could you at least try to talk to her? Or, I don't know, have another look through her documents? God knows if Mrs. Annalise and her husband really covered something up then maybe there's still some sort of information. I can take a look, but I doubt I'll find anything new. All the things she's gathered about little Marcus were in that folder, so... Still, Stephanie, please give it another try. Every bit of information helps. I pleaded, giving the devoted nurse a warm smile. Finally, she nodded and agreed to have another look. For a moment, though, her eyes focused on me and she mumbled something to herself... I gave her an expectant look, but she shook her head. Oh dear, it's nothing, just a lot of chores left for the day. As I made my way back outside, I couldn't help but chuckle to myself. What chores could she have left to do around the place? Everything was in pristine condition and the old lady didn't seem to leave her room anyway. Well, whatever. The next few days were nothing but one disappointment after another. I continued my search in all directions, grasping even at the tiniest of straws. I rechecked the information about the stolen vehicles, paid all the hospitals a visit in person, and worked my way through snacks upon stacks of old newspapers. Yet I found nothing and it was driving me insane. On the fourth day after I had just returned from another fruitless trip to the library, I finally got something. Like every other evening, I was checking my emails. I was half asleep deleting spam and newsletters when I noticed an email from Stephanie. I found something on the woman. My eyes grew wide. Stephanie explained that she had rummaged through Mr. James' old study. The room was still in the same state after all those years and usually, nobody was allowed to enter it. Given the situation, however, Stephanie decided to break the taboo. After hours of searching, she had uncovered an old document about the night of the accident and a photograph of the woman. Accompanying it were several notes by Mr. James that she didn't feel comfortable sharing with me. Instead, she had taken a picture of both the document and the photograph and had attached them to the email. I downloaded both files and the moment that they were finished, I opened up the first one, the photograph. When I looked at it, I was confused. And I was tired too, I thought. Rubbing my eyes, I must to have gotten the files mixed up. I closed the image that I had opened and went to the download folder and tried again. Once more, I got the same result. The woman in the photograph looked exactly like my mother in her younger years. I laughed and shook my head. What the? The resemblance was uncanny. I leaned in closer and focused on every detail of her face, but there was no doubt. This woman was an exact doppelganger of my mother. What a strange coincidence, I thought, as I closed the picture. When I opened the document, however, my head began to spin. A thought from about a week ago had returned to my mind. This was no mere coincidence. The name of the pregnant woman was stated as Lisa Seibert, my mother. I sat in front of the computer dumbfounded. For a moment a sound that might have been a laugh escaped my mouth and then I shook my head. This had to be an elaborate joke, but by whom? The first ones that came to mind were those idiots at the station, but I doubt they would even bother to figure out what my current investigation was about, and if, they wouldn't know how to spoof an email anyway. Susan knew of course, but I struck her off right away for obvious reasons. There was also this chief editor, but I doubted the old man cared enough to go through it with something like this. Once more, I went over the email. I carefully checked the sender and made sure that it wasn't faked. I reread the few lines that Stephanie had written, re-downloaded the files and opened them up again, one after the other. Nothing changed. There had to be an explanation for this. Maybe it was a mix-up. Shouldn't Stephanie have noticed something about the name? It was the same last name as mine. I mean, come on. A second later, my phone was in my hand and I dialed her number. I tried once, twice, and then a few more times, but I couldn't get a hold of her. Was it already that late? at the Clyde told me that it was barely 10 in the evening. Was she already asleep? While I sat there staring at my mother's picture, I thought back to little Marcus's birth certificate. He had been born in 1985. I hadn't thought about it back then and it hadn't even crossed my mind, but it was the same year that I had been born. He had the same skin and eye color and he had most likely had the same hair color as me. It would all check out, I realized with a shudder. No it made no sense. I had been adopted and there was a simple way to disprove any of the strange implications that came to my mind. With shaking hands I picked up the phone again. It rang for almost half a minute before my mother answered. Daniel, why are you calling at this time of the night? For a moment, I almost blurted out the idea in my mind, but I bit my tongue. Hey mom, so I'm investigating this case right now and I'm wondering. Oh, again with that, why can't you finally get a normal job? You know, this work isn't sustainable. If you would just ask your father, I'm sure they would give you another chance at the academy. I'm sure that he can put a good word in for you. It would be so much better than this, this. She broke off, sighing in frustration. Mom, that's not important right now. I can't tell you the details, but I need to know the place that I was adopted from. What? Why do you need to know that? And anyway, can't you just look it up on that internet of yours? It's already late. I can't waste any more time. I think this case is related to one of the people who were working at the Adoption Center. You remember that middle-aged lady you told me so much about? What was her name again? Schneider? And how would I remember something like that? Really, Daniel? It was an obvious lie, but in her annoyance, she didn't even think twice about the story. Instead, she put the phone away. The sound of her stomping through the room and rummaging through drawers had reached my ear. In between, I heard her quietly cursing to herself. It was minutes, but she returned to the phone. In a few short words, she gave me the name of the Adoption Center, clearly fed up with the entire ordeal. Thanks, Mom. You really helped me out. Good night. Oh, good night, Daniel. She mumbled before hanging up. I googled the Adoption Center's name right away and was surprised to find out the place still existed. For a while, I clicked through their website, but of course, they didn't have a public database. I thought about writing them an email or calling them, but when I saw the time, I discarded those ideas. There was no way that anybody would answer me at this time of the day. Instead, I decided to get some rest and pay the place a visit first thing in the morning. I don't know how long I lay in bed, but sleep didn't come. My mind was too occupied in an uproar and all my thoughts centered on one single question. Could it actually be true? No, I answered myself over and over and over again. At 4 in the morning, I gave up on sleep. I took a cold shower and made myself a steaming hot cup of coffee. For the next hour, my confused mind made up various scenarios. Maybe the woman that they had hit really was my mom's doppelganger. Who knows, maybe Mr. James had tried to figure out more about her and had somehow confused her with my mother. Heck, even if they had really hit her, it didn't mean a thing. Other similar ideas came to mind, but somehow they all felt contrived, sillier, even more unbelievable than the many implications on my mind. Eventually, I gave up and drove to the adoption center. When I parked my car, it was still almost an hour before the place opened up. I was antsy, shuffling in my seat and tinkering with my phone. Yet I couldn't keep my thoughts from lingering on the same topic. The moment the center opened up, I was out of the car and stepped inside. The older lady behind the counter looked up in surprise. Well, good morning, Mr. Early Bird. She greeted me with a hearty laugh. It was the first pleasant thing I had heard in weeks. Are you by any chance interested in finding out more about adoptions? I tried to return her smile, but from her reaction, I could tell that I had failed miserably. Sorry, no, I'm a private detective and I'm here to have a look at your database. Once I had identified myself, she led me to the office of their IT specialist. Tell you the truth, I'd be happy to help you myself. The problem is everything's on the computers these days and well. She said laughing again. I've never been good with modern technology. I'm sure Sam can help you out, but really, he's the only one into this whole internet thing. She led me to a small back room that might very well have been a janitor's closet. The lady opened the door and introduced me to a heavy-set, balding man. He was stuffed behind a small desk and in front of a computer... That might have very well been from the mid-2000s. The man looked up, staring at us like a deer caught in the headlights. Hey Sam, this is Mr. Sybert, a private detective. He's here to find some information on a case that he's working on. And with that, she turned around and went on her way back to the front desk. Sam didn't say a word, instead he continued staring at me while he tried his best to hide the general chaos of his desk from me. For a few painful seconds, all was quiet. Eventually, I cleared my throat and spoke up. All right, Sam, I started and took a quick glance over my shoulder to see if we were alone. This might sound a bit strange, but I'm actually here because of a personal issue. You see, I've been adopted at this very center myself, and I need to have a look at the data on it. He gave me a puzzled look before he shrugged. Sure thing, just give me a name and a date and we should be able to find it right away. Let's open this baby up. While he opened the database, he proudly explained the ins and outs of the new system that he had put together. It made finding all sorts of information way easier than before. I only listened with one ear and quickly told him my full name and those of my parents. It wasn't long before an entry popped up on the screen. You see, that's the beauty of the system. ''There you are, Mr. Seibert,'' he said and turned the monitor in my direction. ''Are there any pictures?'' ''Sure.'' After a few more clicks, an image appeared in the top right corner. I blinked and opened my mouth but closed it again when I didn't know what to say. The boy that I was staring at looked exactly like little Marcus. I started sweating, my head spun, and for a moment I held onto the desk to stop myself from keeling over. No freaking way. Sam didn't seem to notice. Instead, he sat there scratching his head while he scanned the file on the screen. Well, this is odd. He mumbled to himself. My head jerked in his direction. What's odd? This entry, I mean your entry. A good chunk of it is missing. I've got no idea why. He pointed at a few empty lines near the bottom of the screen. Probably nothing but a mistake. He said, shrugging. I bet Clara didn't fill in the data correctly again. God knows she's terrible with computers. Hold on a moment. He heaved himself out of his tiny chair, pushed past me, and left the room. What are you? I started, but he had already waddled away down the hallway. For a while, I stood there and scanned the file myself. He was right, at least half of it was missing. After a few minutes, Sam was back, holding a giant folder in his hand. With a loud sigh, he propped himself back in his chair, and haphazardly created a space between the chaos in front of himself. A multitude of old notes, papers, and trash descended to the floor between his legs, and then he opened up the folder and went through it. When he found what he had been looking for, he frowned. What's it now? I asked. Well, this one's just a copy, but a shoddy one. You see this? He asked, pointing at the page in front of him. When I focused on it, I saw that it was an old, crumbled-up sheet of paper. Part of it was dirtied, and only the head of the document had been filled out. No information about your biological parents. No proper date of birth, nothing. See? Just your name, the date of the adoption, and your adopted parents. I stared at him, not able to say a single word. Sam, however, went on undeterred. I'll tell you what, I bet the original got lost or someone spilled coffee all over it. God knows it happened all the time when Robert was still around. Bet the old fox tried to cover up his mistake, but forgot to fill out the rest. I gave him a weak nod about the word copy and the missing information. It was all too much. How about this? Sam started when he saw the dejected look on my face. I give the Central Archive a call and once I get a hold of the real file, I'll hit you up. Not like I've got anything else to do around here anyway. It might take a while, but if you've been adopted, I'm sure we'll find that file. Great, thank you. I finally brought out in a weak voice and gave him my number. I was about to leave, but then I stopped. You say, is there a chance you can print me a copy of that picture? Yeah, no problem. A few seconds later, I held a picture of a three-year-old me in my hands. During my drive home, I still tried to convince myself that I was wrong. You know the truth, a voice in the back of my head kept protesting. The evidence is all there. No, I said out loud. It's not. As I drove on, my hands clutched onto the steering wheel. And after a while, I couldn't help but laugh and shake my head. The moment that I was home, I put the picture from the adoption center next to the one of little Marcus. Right at that moment, even the last bastion of refusal broke away. There was no doubt it was the same child. It was me. I was little Marcus. I sat there stunned, not able to move or do anything. My whole life, my entire world had just come crashing down and I felt as if I was trapped under an invisible avalanche. Everything was a lie, wasn't it? There was no alternative, was there? And then I thought back to all that I had uncovered. If my parents had really kidnapped me and taken me from Mrs. Annalise for revenge, then what about her husband? If all this was connected, then what about the hit and run? No, the murder... I thought about Dad, about how protective he had always been of Mom and how serious and driven a man he was. Now, if anybody would have hurt her, he wouldn't have let it slide. Dear God, Dad, what did you do? The stolen cars I remembered. The driver had never been identified. There had been no evidence and the entire investigation had been futile. I started to think, wouldn't it be easy for a police officer to hide the evidence? even if somebody had a hunch with no proof. I was already on my way to my parents' house when my phone rang. In the state that I was in, I picked up more by habit than conscious decision. The moment that I heard a male voice, I was confused and only then realized what I had done. At first, I didn't know who I was talking to, but then I recognized Sam's voice. He told me that he had called the Central Archives, but he had gotten nothing. No hint of any information, no entry. Nothing about my adoption at all. What does it mean? I asked in a quivering voice, but I already knew the answer. Well, I'll tell you the truth, something like this has never happened. Even the archivist that I talked to was puzzled. Hate to say it, but if I had to guess, the file we looked at might have been a fake. And how is something like that even possible? You're telling me that somebody put together a file about me, and I broke off, not even sure what to say. Well, there might be other explanations, but, and who would even be able to do something like that? I yelled into the phone, not able to hide my frustration. For a moment, Sam was quiet, clearly taken aback. When he spoke again, his voice was timid. Well, somebody with connections, I guess. Our database is connected to some of the local hospitals, one or two of the orphanage, well, and the police, of course, but. As he rambled on, I didn't listen anymore. If the police had access to their database, it didn't mean that anybody would be able to. Sam was still rambling on, but I cut him off. Well, thanks, that's all I needed, I said, and without waiting for a reply, I hung up. No shock overcame me, no grief. In the end, it was just another tiny piece of evidence that added up to what I already knew. The moment that I arrived at my parents' house, Mom was surprised to see me. Daniel, what are you doing here? Don't tell me it's about that case of yours. You could have just called, it's not like... Where is Dad at? Is he home? I cut her off. Oh, I think he's in the back, she said, giving me a confused look. Without waiting for another word, I pushed myself past her and made my way to the backyard. Daniel, what's going on? She called after me. The moment that dad saw me, he got up from his bench and walked over to me. Before he could say as much as a word, I spoke up. I know about Mrs. Annalise. He didn't show any reaction to the name, but I heard mom who followed me with a gasp. I couldn't hide the sad little smile that showed on my face. No, son, who's this Mrs. Annalise? Can't you at least give your old man a hug? And who would that be? In an instant, his face turned dark. I know the adoption document's fake, I started. Oh, God, is that why you called me? Mom asked from behind me. We've been over this so many times, Daniel. I don't know why you have to. Quiet, Lisa. Dad cut her off. Now, what are you talking about, son? I know what happened 30 years ago about Mom's accident and about what you did. With that, I turned to face Mom. That rich couple that ran you over and you lost your child, didn't you? Mom stared at me with wide eyes. No, I don't know what you're talking about. She started but shuffled around anxiously. I don't know what this is all about, Daniel." Oh, how her eyes betrayed her. She was never good at lying. Daniel, don't you mean Marcus? I snapped at her. She cringed back a step as if I had hit her and put her hand over her mouth. A faint howl escaped her lips. I was about to confront her further, but Dad got a hold of my arm and pulled me back to face him. I don't know what you think you're talking about, boy, but you better stop. He said, his face red with anger. What about her husband? He was run over a hit and run, but I bet you remember it very well now, don't you? I asked, not bothering to hide the accusation in my voice. He stared me down, but this time he said nothing. It was you, wasn't it? After mom's accident, you decided. Be quiet, son, you don't know a thing. I know enough, I spat at him. Tell me one thing, mom. I said, turning to face her. Why did you take her child? No, I mean, why did you kidnap me? As she stood there, tears filled her eyes. I thought that it was shock or sadness, but then I saw the anger on her face. Danielle, that's what her name would have been. She finally brought out. That day they took her from me, from us. And then I learned she had a little boy of her own. I wanted her to feel the same thing. I wanted to, but oh, you were such a cute little thing that there was no way. Dang it, Lisa. Dad screamed and pushed himself between her and me. And you, you know nothing, not even in the slightest. There was nothing that we could have done. She and that husband of hers, they had it all covered up and put the blame on Lisa. They didn't even acknowledge the pregnancy. And then they threw a bit of money here and some there. And everybody was happy to trust their story. Even my colleagues at the station. And so you took things into your own hands, right, Dad? Oh, that's so like you. The slap that he gave me was hard, but it was nothing compared to the knowledge that I had said. No, all that I had guessed was true. The woman behind me, the woman that I had called Mom for over three decades, was mumbling to herself. Son, I didn't, the man in front of me said. His hands were shaking and all the color had drained from his face. He had always been a big and strong man, but now he seemed small, weak, and most of all, old. So it's all true, I said to myself more than to him. And then I gave them both a long and hard look. Goodbye, I said and then in a sarcastic voice I added, Mom and Dad. As I turned to leave, they didn't come after me. Neither of them said a word. There was nothing left to be said and nothing that they could have done. Once back outside, I jumped into my car and drove off. I barely made it a few blocks when all the bottled up emotions poured out of me. I hit the brakes hard, stopped the car, and screamed at the top of my lungs. The freakout must have lasted for minutes, but I remember nothing about it. Once it was over, I was exhausted. My hands hurt, my knuckles were bleeding, and I realized that I must have beat me inside of my car in sheer outrage. For a while, I just sat there panting. It was all true, all of it. I took out my license and laughed at the name Daniel Seibert. Just another one of their lies, I said and threw it out the window. And then I remembered the email that Stephanie had sent me. Why hadn't she said a single word about the name? Shouldn't she have wondered about it and why hadn't she answered the phone? A second later, I dialed her number again and waited for her to pick up. It rang and rang and rang before I was notified the recipient couldn't be reached. I tried once more, but the same thing happened. As many times as I tried, she didn't pick up. Eventually, I dropped the phone and started the car again. The drive to Mrs. Annalisa's mansion would normally take about three hours. That day, in the state of sheer and utter rage I was in, it barely took me two. It was purely dumb luck that I wasn't stopped by the police. The moment that I had parked the car, I jumped out and rushed to the front door. I didn't even bother, didn't even think about the doorbell. Instead, I beat my still-bleeding fists against the heavy wood and called Stephanie's name. It didn't take long before I heard something inside. It was the sound of distant footsteps on marble. They were slow and measured as if my outrage was no reason for concern, or, I realized, expected. When the nurse finally opened the door, she greeted me with her usual warm smile. Mr. Sybert, are you alright? You look terrible, and what happened to your hands? You know, don't you, Stephanie? For a moment, her smile vanished as she probed me. When it returned, it was different and full of mockery. And what might you be referring to, Mr. Seibert? The way she pronounced my last name, the heavy sarcasm she coded it in, was enough to answer my question. When did you figure it out? Was it the moment you saw my mother's name on that file? For a moment, she just stared at me before she laughed. Good God, a fine detective you are. Even if there had been a file like that, you'd think it would have been enough to give everything away. Even if there had been a file like that. What the heck are you talking about? I snapped at her. When she noticed the sudden anger on my face, she flinched and took a step back, but then she spoke again. I knew right from the start. Long before you even showed up here and long before I wrote you that email. How in the heck did you? You forgot them, didn't you? Forgot what? The letters. She spat at me in a voice full of disgust. What letters? I started, but then the memory returned to me. Years ago, while I was still attending university for a few semesters, I had found a letter in my mailbox. It was supposedly written by my biological mother and said she wanted to get in contact with me. For days, I was a mess and tried to figure out what to do. Eventually, the letter ended up in the trash. It was better that way, I told myself. But I guess I wasn't man enough. For a while, the letters kept coming, but I didn't even open them anymore. By now, I had long since forgotten about them. "'Does she know?' I finally asked in a broken voice. Stephanie shook her head. "'No,' she started. "'Good God, it was so long ago. Back then, I had barely started working here. One day, I stumbled upon the picture of a little boy. When I asked if it was her son, she broke into tears.' She told me the entire story. The accident, her husband's murder, and the kidnapping of the child. Yet she never found out what had happened to the boy. There were no hints, no evidence, nothing at all. And that's when I told her that we had to look for you. And then you found me and she sent me those letters, right? The nurse nodded. We hired a professional and you have no idea how happy she was when I told her about you. I had never seen her like this before and never have since. She cried for hours, but it was tears of pure happiness. I felt for her so dearly that day, and then we waited. With each passing day, she grew more excited, but no answer arrived. I told her that the letter must have gotten lost, and so we sent another one, and then another, and another, and with each one, she withered away more. Her happiness turned to grief and eventually apathy, I told her that I would call you, visit you, drive her to your home, but by then she had given up. That boy, she said, is not my little Marcus anymore. He doesn't want to see me and probably doesn't even remember me. As she stared me down, throwing her unsaid accusations and condemnations my way, I couldn't face her. I couldn't face what I had done. So why now? I eventually asked, turning back to her, why after all those years... Because your mother's dying, that part's true. But I knew what would have happened if I had sent you more letters. You would ignore them just like before and you would have thrown them away. Even if I were to call you or visit you, you would probably not even talk to me. But when I saw your occupation, I knew there was a way. If I would figure it out on my own, if I knew what my parents had done, what I had done and you thought I'd, I broke off not able to continue as if it all came crashing down on me. Can you forgive them for what they did? Can you? I said nothing but shook my head. And then slowly, ever so slowly, a burning rage rose from inside me. And to finally get me to meet her, you had to ruin my life. You had to show me all of it, every single last bit of what my parents did. But tell me, Stephanie, tell me one thing. What makes her so different from them? She and her husband were the ones who ran over a woman, killed her unborn child, and covered it all up to save their own butts. They didn't care one bit about what they had done. And you think she's any better than them. That's not. Stephanie started, but I didn't let her speak. She's the same, they're all the same. And you, you're the same as well. But Marcus, she's waiting for you. If you would just speak to her, just tell her who you are. Can't you at least give her that? For a while, I looked past her. I stared down the long and luxurious hallway and at the heavy hardwood door that led to the room in which my real mother was sitting. Even now, she was most likely staring out that one single window. But then I looked at Stephanie once more before I shook my head and turned to leave. Stephanie called after me her words a mixture of pleas and accusations. I gave them no heed. They were all terrible people each and every one of them. I started the car and drove off. I knew that I would see none of them again. And as I left my dying biological mothers, as well as the people who had raised me as their own behind, I knew that I was as terrible a person as all of them. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.